Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and uh, The Weaponization of Everything, as well as uh, the book Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And Mark is also the author of his own podcast, In Moscow's Shadows. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, it's great to have you on the show again. It's been almost exactly one month since your last appearance, and I'm eager to hear uh, your thoughts about some new developments um, related to the war that continues um, with no sign of an end, really. Uh, The first of those new developments um, that I'd like to discuss is, I think, objectively a very disturbing one. Um, Last Monday, uh, Vladimir Karimurza, an opposition activist and vocal critic of Russia's war against Ukraine, was convicted of treason and other crimes and sentenced to 25 years in prison uh, in Moscow. Uh, Hugh Williamson of Human Rights Watch called it, quote, a monstrous prison term for no more than raising his voice and elevating the voices of others in Russia who disagree with the Kremlin, its war in Ukraine, and its escalating repression within Russia. Um, And in fact, uh, the verdict and sentence clearly are a part of the escalating repression. Um, So I want to ask you about that. Mark, other Russians have been sentenced to comparable terms um, on treason charges um, in, in the past. Uh, but this is by far the longest single prison sentence handed down to a political opponent of President Vladimir Putin. W- what do you think is the reason for this? Uh, is it because Karimurza has been a key advocate in the West for so-called Magnitsky legislation that calls for actions against Russian officials uh, deemed human rights violators? Is it because of his criticism of the war? Um, is it a combination, or are there, are there other factors at work? And apologies, a second question here, I guess. What does um, the sentence uh, say about where Russia is headed in terms of suppression of dissent? It seems like the clampdown has been intensifying. I mean, it, arguably it started when Putin was considering returning to the Kremlin back in 2011, 2012. Um, but it seems like it's been intensifying uh, for more than two years now uh, since Alexei Navalny's arrest upon his return to Russia in January 2021. Can it get even worse? Obviously, you really want me to be a, a, a voice of optimism here. No, I think mean, if we first of all look at the, as you say, appalling sentence placed on Vladimir Karamurza. I don't think it's so much about what he's been saying about the war, so much as, as you mentioned, his role as one of the powerful voices speaking up, not just for the Magnitsky measures, but actually also for more sanctions right now. And I think this is in some ways why they have gone for specifically charging him with treason rather than just the usual uh, spreading lies about the special military operation and uh, against the honour of the armed forces. Go back to the fact that, you know, Putin himself once said to to Venediktov that, you know, there are enemies and there are traitors. And enemies you fight with, but the idea is that maybe someday you actually could reach some kind of modus vivendi with them. And then there are traitors, and traitors you can do nothing with but, but wipe them out, because otherwise they'll stab you in the back. I think from the, and no, one has to say, through the distorted prism of how Putin and those around him feel, Karim was clearly quite that. He was a traitor. From their point of view, and again, this is something that's kind of cropped up on quite a few of the sort of Kremlin-connected, shall we say, social media channels. This sense that, look, this is a guy who had an out. He had a life in the United States, a British passport. He'd been warned, which presumably means by them trying to poison him. And yet he still came back. And I think this was precisely seen as a challenge. One thing when Navalny did it. But when someone else does it as well, there is almost that sense of really, really, you want to test us? You want to test our will, our determination at this moment, at the time of war? Well, fine. 
we, we will respond in kind. And it also helps, again, from the Kremlin's point of view, that this is a man who domestically does not have the same kind of profile as Alexei Navalny. So in some ways, it's easier to use him as an example, particularly to people outside the country, without running quite the same risk of a domestic backlash. So I, I think you know, for all these reasons, I think they, they decided that now this is, is a man who has challenged us and that therefore we need to demonstrate that we have the greater will. What does it say more widely? Well, look, of course, this is all part of an escalating uh, tide, escalating tide, a rising tide of repression. And as you say, it, it, it dates back. And I think if we go back to 2011, 2012, Balotnaya protests and so forth, one of the key reasons for the steady growth of the, the repressive policy is precisely because, to Putin, Balotnaya was not simply an expression of the organic protest of Russian, particularly metropolitan Russians, who felt that they deserved better than for the presidency just simply to be a, a baton passed from one runner to the other, for their elections to be rigged and such like. No, no, of course not. In that, instead, Putin saw the hand of the CIA and indeed MI6, and this was, in a way, the Americans finally coming for him. You know, they, they had this hybrid war strategy of generating fake revolutions to bring down regimes they don't like, Arab Spring, colored revolutions in post-Soviet space and such like, and now they're coming into Russia. So in a way, I think from that point of view, in hindsight, Putin really felt that he was at war with the West, a political war. So I think in, in that context, yes, of course, we, we, we've seen a steadily increasing uh, process of recession, repression. Navalny, he, was, he, you know, he had become dangerous precisely because of the risk that he could unite a whole coalition of the fed up into a single political movement. Therefore, he had to be dealt with. But then, you know, above all, now we have the war. And therefore, I think there are both practical and ideological reasons for the, the much sharper uh, approach being taken now. The practical one is precisely that uh, the war and the sanctions and the mobilizations, all of these are creating distinct amounts of uh, unhappiness within the population. Even people who, broadly speaking, might approve of the, of the war in the sense that they have accepted this narrative that Russia is, is assailed, that Ukraine is not really about Ukraine, it's about, you know, fighting this proxy war against an aggressive NATO that wants to constrain Russia and deny it its rightful place in the world, etc., etc. Even a lot of the people who actually accept that kind of underlying notion are unhappy with the specific impacts on their lives. They, they don't want themselves or their kids or their brothers or whatever to be mobilised. They're unhappy with the fact that real wages have been falling. They're unhappy with all kinds of different impacts. And there is a concern that the manifestations of that, and it's worth noting that although since those early protests, we haven't really seen any major political anti-war protests other than people just simply getting the hell out of Dodge when they were afraid of being mobilised. What we do still see is a whole constant bubbling up of local and largely economically related protests around the country. Very small scale, totally disconnected from each other, relatively easy to outlast, oppress or buy off, but nonetheless saying something about the protest potential in the country. And I think the big fear within the security apparatus and therefore the political elite as a whole is what we could think of as the Polish scenario, going back to the rise of the Solidarity Trade Union in Warsaw Pact era Poland and the due course installation of martial law. That sense that strikingly and scarily quickly, a, a general sense of discontent can be catalyzed into a powerful movement that bridges the gap between economic and political protest. And that's what they're really trying to ensure that they, they prevent. They know that there's a lot of dissatisfaction. They can deal with it so long as it's disconnected and not really politically oriented. But that requires a constant effort to keep any protest, any opposition fragmented.
So that's the kind of practical reason for this. But there's also this ideological one. I mean, this conflict is, as I said, being presented as a struggle for the survival of Russia as a great power, for the survival, the maintenance of Russia's autonomy within the world. It's about not giving in to the hegemonic American attempt to basically house train Russia. All of these sorts of things. And that means that this is a new patriotic war. And by definition, then, those who are not willing to toe the government line are being unpatriotic, which we could call treacherous. And in some ways, I think you know, Putin himself has, has signaled this. Back in March, actually sort of jotted down a couple of lines. I mean, this is his, his attack on a, in a video conference that was then widely disseminated. Uh, he laid into the so-called fifth column, national traitors, those who earn money here with us, but live over there. Live not in the geographic sense, but in the sense of their thoughts, their slavish thinking. And he then later on said that, that the Russian people will always be able to tell true patriots from the scum and the traitors and just spit them out. Which, as I recall, he continued to say something like, as if they were just flies who had accidentally flown into their mouths, which is a rather weird little sort of rhetorical flourish. But, you know, that was the point where he was basically putting people on notice that the days when it was possible for there to be, shall I say, loyal opposition, for there to be a grey zone between, you know, outright Navalny-esque hostility to the regime and actually being a, you know, a loyal servant thereof, where you could have your qualms, you could have your, your specific concerns about this policy or that. Well, no, no, those, those days are gone. Now there's a much more straightforward binary. Are you with the Kremlin or are you against the Kremlin? And if you're against the Kremlin, you are, by its own logic, against Russia and therefore have to be dealt with. So, you know, I, th I think there is a degree to which the Kremlin and the security apparatus as a whole is, I don't want to say trapped, but shall I say logically led to a steady increase in repression precisely because of the way they have chosen to frame this war. So put those together, and I, I absolutely think that, that we will see things getting worse. Now, I must caution. I, I'm worried about the degree to which people start throwing words like fascist or, or more to the point, Stalinist around. This is not Stalinism. In some ways, yes, this is becoming more and more totalitarian in the sense of wanting to control not just what people do, but what they think. But we are not at the point, and I don't think will be, where we're talking about sort of huge you know, mass arrests, gulags, let alone people being shot in the back of the head and, and, and dumped into mass graves. Um, but, but nonetheless, I, I think there is still scope for an increasing sort of spasm of repression, which ironically enough in the long term will actually harden the resistance to the regime. But nonetheless, in, in, in the process, will be distinctly uncomfortable for everyone concerned. Well, thanks very much, Mark. That's, uh, I mean, a great answer. Lots of lots of layers there. Um, uh, fascinating. I hadn't really thought of the connection, frankly, to to kind of the protests that are happening uh, now that are connected with the war. So that's um, that's very interesting um, aspect. Um, it also would go back, I mean, I think you're absolutely right uh, that um, part of the reason for the, the verdict and the long sentence for um, Karim Murza is just the, the idea of what you're going to challenge us. Like, you know, I feel that this kind of resentment and, and uh, on the part of, of the Kremlin and, and Putin himself is, is, is kind of a strong factor. Um, you know, and you mentioned he'd been warned, Karim Murza, um, um, and that refers, of course, to two um, illnesses that he had during trips to Russia, uh, which he and, and many others believe in a, um, were uh, deliberate poisonings. Um, so, you know, that's a parallel uh, with, with Navalny. Um, uh, so the idea that, that he returned, you know, already during, during the, after the, a couple months after the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, um, uh, you know, was a, a, a big factor in, in, in what happened. Um, also, I mentioned uh, the 
kind of the Putin and others setting out in treason, these, these people uh, accusing people of being traitors um, if they're not fully in line. Um, and in fact, I believe uh, we had an article at RFE uh, last week. Uh, I believe the number of treason cases is is up sharply this year. I think it was something like there were 20-something last year, and now there are already 20-something this year. And these are cases, only cases that are known about. Uh, some treason cases are, or many, uh, maybe more more than are known about, are in fact kept kept under wraps. So that seems to be a trend. And now we have um, Navalny, uh, going back to Navalny, he may be facing a new charge as well, uh, his lawyers say. And that's not, uh, at this point, that's not treason, but um, it does raise the prospect uh, of, of Navalny, who, you know, being hit with it with further sentence, you know, the, and then that that, that could uh, be ratcheted up somewhere near the 25 years that, that, um, that Karim Murza has been um, sentenced to. I mean, the thing about Navalny, it's worth noting, is they don't need to actually slap some large charge on him. They can just continue to, to as it were, drip-feed years onto his sentence for as long as they want. I mean, as we've seen most recently with basically what, what seems to have been a sort of a staged incident in which another inmate attacks him, he defends himself, and then now he's being accused of, of brawling in prison, um, which, of course, means that they can add to his tariff as well as have an excuse for keeping him in a punishment isolation cell. I mean, I think, again, this is, this is the interesting thing, is that with Navalny, I think they're less concerned about wider messaging as just simply making damn sure that he is kept behind barbed wire for as long as they want him to remain behind barbed wire. He's dangerous rather than being a potential example to others. Right, absolutely, and that fits in with with what, you know the fears you mentioned about protests. And I'll just mention the name of of another um, Russian who's who's been imprisoned, Ilya Yashin, um, opposition politician, um, a, a, a lawmaker in Moscow, um, and he's now he's been sentenced to eight and a half years in prison, and he's now on his way to apparently on his way after his appeal was of course. Rejected uh, on his way to serve the term in an unknown location, as as they do. Um, so, and he issued a statement before he was sent, um, saying, "I'm in I'm in good health. I'm I would never um, commit suicide." So, kind of what I think he or his lawyers call an insurance statement, um, uh, so that to raise alarms in case uh, anything happens to him. So Russell, if I can just mention something about Yashin, because again, he, he made a very uh, eloquent statement. And I think this, is the, this is the striking thing. If one thinks of these three high-profile opposition figures, who, let's be honest, have both some personal rivalries, but also some political differences, but all three of them have made these very striking um, presentations of their positions based around patriotism, very much actually trying to undermine the state's attempt to mobilize patriotism on its own behalf. And I think this is going to be one of the really powerful future, future battlegrounds. It is not that the opposition is anti-Russian. I mean, that, that is, I think, a key point that they're all trying to make. And I think doing so, as I said, with, with, with passion, fervor, eloquence, and indeed you know, in, immense personal bravery by the fact that they've all sort of basically put themselves in harm's way and, and are now imprisoned as a result. But it is this, this desire to basically wrest back the notion of patriotism. And the irony is this is happening on both sides of the house, shall we say, because you've also got the so-called turbo patriots, these you know, ultra-nationalists, many of whom are themselves becoming more and more disillusioned with the Kremlin and with Putin personally, seeing him as being actually a very weak reed in holding up Russia's national interests. And beginning to articulate a perspective in which it is patriotic to be anti-Putin. So we're getting that from the ultra-nationalists, and we're also getting that from the liberal opposition. And I think, that, again, that's something that it's going to be really interesting to see if it can really sort of play out and, and to use a sort of modern political jargon, cut through 
to a wider constituency. Yeah, that that's fascinating. It's kind of a pincer movement, um, and and it's worth you're, you're absolutely right to mention these these, these passionate um, statements that those three have, have all made. It's definitely worth if you haven't seen. Uh, I'm, obviously, you have, but um, members of the audience, um, Yash and, and Karim Morzaz, kind of what they call the the final statement uh, in court. Um, those are quite uh, quite interesting, and, and as you mentioned, they, they you know they portray themselves as patriots and say it's uh, it's Putin and, and the government who's who, who, who are not patriots, um, and they also talk of a time when um, this will all be over. Um, I think Karim Mirza, you know, looked at for looked at predicted um, a, you know a time when people. I think he said, you know, who started this, who started this war, who are responsible for it, you know, will be in the dock instead of those who protested against it. Uh, but let's uh, move on. Um, other development that I wanted to ask you about is what some are calling the digital draft. Uh, it's the law that Putin signed earlier this month that enables the state um, to uh, give notice uh, to draftees and reservists um, electronically instead of by, by paper notice, uh, and under which the recipient is considered to have been served the notice, whether he's seen it you know, on the internet or not. Um, the consensus seems to be that this and other elements of this new law will make it much harder to avoid being called up. Um, and this has raised fears of a massive new mobilization effort months after Putin's, uh, what he called a partial mobilization order last September prompted tens or, or hundreds of thousands of people to flee the country. And it also comes as Russian forces continue to have a lot of trouble advancing in Ukraine and as Ukraine gears up for what could be a major counteroffensive in the coming weeks or months. Now, this is kind of a broad question mark, but I'd be grateful if you could offer your, I guess, your main takeaways on, on how this may affect both the course of the war in Ukraine and, and life um, and, and maybe even politics in Russia. Uh, some say a major new, new mobilization effort could be risky for Putin. Yes, I mean, I think undoubtedly it would be. I mean, first takeaway is that I don't think this measure guarantees that there will be another mobilization wave. I think it's rather on the precautionary principle that if that is going to happen, they want to try and make it a damn sight less clumsy and counterproductive as the first time. The thing is that, after all, I mean, it's almost certain that one way or the other, Putin will need more troops. Let's assume that there's no more particular offensives beyond the current one, primarily at, at, at Bakhmut for the Russians. I think they're more or less beginning to kind of move now into more of a defensive mode. They're hunkering down, waiting precisely for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Though I suspect that's still going to be a while coming properly because they haven't yet had the opportunity to sort of metabolize, let alone or even receive a lot of the armor, the, the tanks that they've been promised. But nonetheless, you know, when that happens, then they, 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 will, they will be having to, to fight back. They're trying to deny the Ukrainians any particular gains and there will be losses as a result. And in that context, Putin has a series of, I wouldn't say equally, but all highly unpalatable options. He can have another mobilization wave. But we've seen how unpopular that is. And OK, perhaps the, these new measures with all the, the notices being sent out via Gosuslugi, the state uh, electronic services portal, um, you know, maybe will actually make it harder for people to then flee the country. But nonetheless, you know, it, it is clear that it is not in the slightest bit popular. Alternatively, he can send conscripts. But again, that too comes with major political costs. It's almost like a, an implicit social contract from the family. Is we, we will in, basically entrust our, our boys to you, but you have to look after them. There is no easy option. And I think it's preparing for that, which is, which is what, what this particular measure is intended. And it, it is interesting that it's going to take months. I mean, we're already seeing some people fleeing the country and some voices on social media saying, oh, my God, you've got to get out now. You've got to remember that for most Russians, they can't just simply flee the country and stay out. 
they can't get visas, they can't get employment uh, rights, or indeed they just simply don't have the kind of job that is transferable. The way it's looking at the moment is that although there are trial runs being done in St. Petersburg at the moment, essentially it's going to take months to integrate all the various databases, which is at the heart of, of this new measure. And they're talking about the fact that it'll only really be properly up and running in time for the autumn draft season. So the tragic irony is that people who flee now may well find themselves forced by circumstance back into Russia just in time for the full activation of this system. It has been described by some as a kind of digital gulag. I, again, those terms overblown. Always be careful about anything that immediately sort of Link, links to the Stalin era, but I think it does speak to uh, a particularly dangerous uh, process that is at work, which is in some ways the kind of techno-managerialism that Prime Minister Mishustin brought in. Um, this is background being in, you know, actually has having been uh, overseeing the real revolutionization of the Russian tax system, turning it into actually a, a very smoothly working system particularly through this you know, turning away from a position in which individual human fallibilities were, were, were central to the process and instead one in which actually it's all about databases being crunched. Combining that with the new authoritarianism is creating a shift towards a techno-authoritarianism that may not be quite as all-inclusive as the Chinese model, but nonetheless you know, does mean that it has much more capabilities one of the sort of implicit checks and balances on Russian authoritarianisms have usually been the inefficiency, the corruption and the stupidity of those people who are actually trying to apply it. Well, the danger is that although I'm sure there's, there's still going to be inefficiency, there's certainly still going to be corruption, but nonetheless, actually, it, there will be that much less human margin in, in this system once it's sort of gone through. So I, I think you know, this is, for me, the sort of the, the domestic concern, is that it, it creates an environment in which actually the state is much, much more capable of coercing its own people through the databases and the facial recognition software running on all the ubiquitous closed-circuit TV cameras, etc. That said, I mean, at the moment, there's still this massive publicity campaign trying to get people to sign up. You've got these, these TV ads basically more or less saying, look, you know, if you want to be a man, you should join up. Um, there's posters everywhere. It demonstrates the degree to which actually the Kremlin is still very, very wary about using coercion to get itself another army. It would so much prefer if it can get people to sign up, whether as mercenaries in Wagner or one of the other proliferating private military companies or actually the regular army. So, again, we're talking about capabilities without necessarily saying intent. Final point, though, what, what does it mean for the actual war? Well, again, I think it's all signs of the degree to which actually the Russians are both signalling but also genuinely preparing for a long war. And you know, the expectation is not just simply that they won't be able to win, but that they have to endure in order to, to be able to wrest some kind of victory. They have to outlast the West's willingness to support the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians' capacity to keep fighting. So they're creating all these structures. And we're seeing parallel changes being done within the economy and elsewhere in order to precisely create a situation in which, if need be, this can last another year, this can last two years. Now, I'm not guaranteeing either the war would last this long or that there will not be severe crises. I mean, much will depend on how the Ukrainians do on the battlefield and also the potential for um, serious problems within the economy, but probably not this year. But nonetheless, that, that I think, is, is, is what we're seeing. And therefore, I think we can probably expect on the battlefield the Russians to be relatively conservative. Something like Bakhmut was a political priority, Putin needing to have something he, you know, that he can call a victory. I'm sure they will be delighted if it could come before Victory Day, um, beginning of next month. But I don't think that's a kind of hard and fast deadline. But beyond that, I think, again, it just simply hold the line, demonstrate that 
this war can go on as long as Ukraine is willing to let it go on and hope that from that they can finally wrest some kind of victory. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. Uh, again, a lot of, lot of levels there. Um, very, very interesting comments. I, I, I just, I'll just say one short thing, which is that for just looking at and hearing what, what people are saying, what the Russian officials are saying and, and others, it does seem to me that the idea of, of hold the line is kind of ticking over. Um, and, and I guess, um, I mean, as you say, you know, presumably they want a, a something they can really call a substantial, um, you know, milestone or victory, uh, such as Bakhmut. But, but th that's the impression I'm getting. Um, not that that is, uh, uh, means it's, it's accurate. Um, uh, but, uh, it just, it just does seem like, um, you know, the idea that there's not much more uh, they can take. So, um, and I guess in some ways that puts the onus uh, kind of on Ukraine, you know, to see what it can do uh, in this potential counteroffensive. Um, but uh, we're getting short on time, uh, but let's uh, take a few questions if there are, if there are any uh, suing. I, I gave some ways to ask a question. Give it a few moments. Uh, okay, we have a question that was sent in. Uh, it's from Daniel Arfire. Apologies for pronunciation if that's wrong. Um, the question is, why is um, Kara Murza uh, not more popular than Navalny? Um, the Russian people are capable of understanding or are the Russian people capable of understanding what Karim Morza said after being sentenced in the sham trial? Um, it's weird that no shame seems to touch uh, the Russian people as a, as a whole. I mean, three things. Okay, in terms of Karim Morza versus Navalny, I mean, I think to a large extent it's precisely because Navalny actually created a movement around himself. I mean, you know, he, he was there, he, he was in, in Russia, and more to the point, you know, his foundation against corruption then became the basis of, frankly, a political party by any other name. So it had its local offices all around and such like. I mean, I think this is it. Actually, by, by creating his own movement, it gave Navalny the opportunity to reach out and connect to constituencies that frankly, and again, this is in no way a disrespect to Karim Murza, but you know, actually, someone who is kind of based out the country to much of the time, who is still kind of more regarded as kind of connected to an older generation of oppositionist movements, you know, it just simply is not able to do. I mean, it, you know, Navalny had his people all the way across from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok, and so that's crucial. In terms of understanding what, what Karim Murza said, well, I, I don't, I see no reason why not. I mean, I think the, the Russians are as capable of introspection as, as anyone else. The thing is, obviously, actually, it's, it's finding out the message. And I think this, this, this is one of the, the big challenges, is exactly how to get past and through the state's attempts to not just control access to information, locking down so many sites, kicking out journalists, arresting them or whatever, um, but also throwing out so much contradictory sort of informational chaff that people just don't really know what on earth is going on. I think this is one of the key powers of this sort of modern information warfare. It's confusion rather than conviction. Um, but nonetheless, bit by bit, the, the word can and, and, and does go out. And, and when it does, I think, you know, pe people will... Some people obviously will, will, will ignore it, but other people will take his words and, and, and Yashin's and Navalny's to heart. Because I think to say, why, why is there no shame? I, mean, I really question whether that's true. I think, firstly, a lot of people don't really know exactly what's going on in Ukraine. They may all know that there's a war going on. They may not be quite sure quite why. 
And they certainly may not know or accept the level of brutality and abuses that are taking place. So, you know, that, that's the first thing. Secondly, I think, I mean, a, a lot of people, I think, are deeply uncomfortable with, with what's going on. But again, what do you do with that in the context of a, a brutal and thuggish authoritarian regime? Most people are not heroes. I, I can't tell you for sure that if I was a Russian citizen who couldn't get out, and in that situation, you know, I, 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 I would trust that I, I would feel horrified by this war. But can I say for certain that I'd be going out and protesting, knowing full well that I'd be dragged into a, you know, a, a um, National Guard or police van, if I'm lucky, fined or sentenced, if I'm unlucky, beaten or worse? I mean, I think this, this is, you know, we have to appreciate the reality of, of life in authoritarian regimes. There tends to be those little historical moments when people feel able to protest and resist. Most of the time, they don't. And I think this, this, this is something we have, we have to appreciate. We, we should not assume that a lack of overt protest on the streets equals support or indeed consent. And if we do so, effectively, we're buying into Putin's own mythology about what the Russian people think. Uh, great point at the at the end there and, and throughout, but yes, uh, um, absolutely. Um, thanks very much, Mark. Um, have a question from a uh, de dedicated listener, Piotr Kurzin. Um, Piotr, uh, you can go ahead, please. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, um, nice to hear you again, Mark. Um, I think I was here exactly a month ago when you were on. Um, but I just wanted your thoughts on, um, obviously, we touched upon the potential mobilization element. Uh, and one of the other biggest things that came out over the weekend, at least, was China's comments. I forget the specific individual's names, but, you know, what he said at a conference or whatever, uh, that, you know, the, the questions around Ukraine's legitimacy as a state um, and whether or not that's going to. In, well, firstly, what's your thoughts on that? Um, and secondly, how do you think that, that could play into the psyche uh, of um uh, of the Ukrainians, the Russians, given that we are seeing this, you know, uh, the, the, the summer of spring months come through, the potential for this uh, offensive to, to gather momentum. How do you think that that could play into the political military dynamics? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question, uh, generally the role of China. I, I mean, on the whole, it's, it's clear that China is basically keeping its powder dry. It, it It's happy to provide a bit of diplomatic uh, top cover and informational support to Russia, but it's not going to go out of its way to support Putin because it doesn't want to risk getting caught by secondary sanctions and the like. This is a useful, I mean, in some ways for, for, for China, they convince themselves this is a win-win situation. Either Russia is successful and then the West will fall into recrimination and introversion, or Russia is defeated and it continues to basically spiral into China's orbit, increasingly looking like a vassal rather than an independent state. But this particular statement, now obviously, um, you know, it, it was perceived at first, because I mean, it was making a general point about the legitimacy of the various post-Soviet states. And in that context, what sounds like a kind of almost a threat against Ukraine is in some ways also a warning to Russia. Because, you know, by definition, that also calls into question things like the borders of and the existence of the Central Asian republics. So I think it's more or less just simply saying, look, don't get too prissy about what's going on. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I think sort of China is trying to still maintain a kind of a degree of equipoise so that it is in a position in the future. I think it would quite like to be the broker of a peace deal in the future, which is one, you know, Putin would probably be more likely to swallow something that Beijing served up than if it came from NATO. But on the other hand, it, this would allow Beijing to be able to say, as part of its wider campaign to kind of assert itself off as a global power, you see, we were the ones who actually stepped in and, and constructively sorted things out. But the point is, at the moment, there is no chance for peace. Neither side is of the belief that you know, it, it's time to talk. Neither side is willing to accept the terms that the other would require as a, as a basic prerequisite for any conversation. So I think at the moment, the Chinese are sort of just kind of casting around. They're, they're, they're demonstrating that they'd be, they'd be willing to support Russia, but only up to a point. 
that they have their own interests, but that this is not their war. And, you know, in, in the process, sometimes they're going to be making statements that sound a little bit pro-Russian. Sometimes they're going to be making statements just as when they were, for example, very critical about the kind of nuclear rhetoric that Russia was using. that were actually sort of quite critical of Moscow. But, but generally speaking, again, they're just making a point, this is not our war. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. Um, yeah, uh, kind of confounding statement by, I believe it was the Chinese ambassador to France. My big question is, when he said this, did he kind of realize, did he have in mind that Russia is also a former Soviet Republic? Um, uh, other questions? Don't get the sense that Chinese ambassadors tend to kind of talk off the cuff much. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't seem like it. Um, okay, uh, next question from uh, Martin Zielig. Again, apologies if mispronouncing. Uh, Martin, go ahead. Zielig. Thank Martin you. Martin Zielig in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, thank you, Steve and uh, Mark. Um, always enlightening to uh, hear your, your take and your perspective on uh, on Russia's uh, war of aggression and genocide against Ukraine. Um, I, I just saw uh, a headline. I haven't um, opened it up yet, but on my phone that uh, the um, on the, the BBC site that uh, uh, China has disowned the remarks by uh, the uh, ambassador to France. Um, uh, I, I'm wondering, uh, there are, uh, there is, uh, a Russian brigade, not a brigade, there, there are Russian fighters, uh, people who are completely disenchanted with um, the, uh, the uh, regime in, uh, in Russia who are uh, and have been fighting for a while now with Ukraine against uh, the invaders. And um, there have been, um, apart from the well-known figures like Karamurza and uh, and uh, the others um, in in Russia, there there have been uh, people who are taking active opposition members. Uh, I remember reading some time back uh, that uh, there are groups that are doing some sabotage within Russia. So my question is, and I, I apologize for being long-winded uh, about this uh, on this question. Uh, my question is, with the um, upcoming uh, or the imminent counteroffensive by Ukraine, uh, which will increase the already staggering amount of losses that Russia has been taking since they launched their illegal unprovoked war uh, against Ukraine. Do you think, Mark, uh, that this might uh, increase some sort of um, opposition within uh, Russia itself, uh, quite apart from uh, what we've already seen. Thank you for uh, for this. I'll drop down to listener. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I mean, it's it, it's a very big question and quite hard to answer in sort of less than an hour. And I don't think Steve would would think kindly of me if I tried to stretch things out that long. I mean, first of all. I think that uh, you know it, it, it's really striking that the, the level of, of, of casualties that, that Russia has absorbed so far, you know, talking 200,000, 220,000 dead and wounded, obviously most of those wounded rather than dead, um, which again, you know, often the comparison is drawn with, with, with the Soviet-Afghan war, 10 years of war, 15,500 dead. So this is an you know, order of magnitude different. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's been one of the questions, okay, at what point does, does the, the simple sort of volume of body bags and injured veterans begin to have a, a, a true political impact? And the answer, obviously, so far is, is, is clearly sort of hasn't in a great degree, except in one key way, which is obviously just simply making people much more aware of the war as, as, as a sort of a, a constant fact of life. Interestingly, I think it's not the casualties that actually cause the political backlash, or at least not so far, but precisely the issues of mobilization and, and, and deployment. So I think it's a slightly more indirect thing. I mean, unless there are vastly more casualties, 
And the point is, if the Russians are essentially on the defensive, then they're probably taking proportionately fewer. I mean, after all, it's worth noting that, you know, although the Russians have taken much more casualties than the Ukrainians, from the context of the fact of their relative populations, actually the Ukrainians have suffered more greatly. Now, of course, it's a very different thing when you're fighting for the survival of your nation and such like, in terms of the sort of morale, the will to fight. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think that, that that's it's worth noting as a sort of contextual point. However, as the losses mount up, that's the point where it creates this key political dilemma for Putin and those he's listening to. Where do they find? I mean, I think they're going to they're need to find at least at least 200,000 extra soldiers come autumn. And again, either that means they're going to have to turn to the conscripts or that means mobilization, because there's no way they're going to induce 200,000 Russian young men or men of any age, really, um, to actually sign up voluntarily. So again, I think that's that's the the, the, the hinge because that is when I think we'll actually begin to see a chance for real political resistance. Um, it's it, it's when people are being forcibly called up. So slightly more kind of long term process, but it's there. Just one brief final note though about the issue of of kind of resistance in, in, at home. There's some talk about kind of organised guerrilla movements and such like. I'm I'm still exceedingly sceptical about that. I think what we have seen, and again, I think it speaks to this idea of a, of a general climate of discontent, is a lot of sporadic local individual cases, particularly of arson. And again, this is this is this is something becomes something of a, a cultural trope. I mean, if you go back to the times of, of, of late Tsarist Russia, there there was this constant issue of the red rooster roaming the countryside, which is the sort of term used for peasants burning down the homes of landlords as a way of resistance when the landlords were seen to have over overstepped the mark. Well, now we, we have a, a 21st century red rooster, which is precisely firebombing Voyenkomati, the military draft offices, both as a general protest, but also specifically to destroy the paper records, which on which they still heavily depend. Um, but that, as I said, everything we've seen so far implies that although there is some kind of loose connected tissue, you know, of, for example, people online sharing videos and such like of this happening, there's no real organisation. And in some ways, I think that's even more encouraging because it's not that there's a, some single little group of dedicated fire bombers. It's precisely that there is a certain kind of mood in the country that is is willing to re, to respond in this kind of anarchic kind of way. So, you know, it, it's there. What I don't know, and what, what frankly no one knows, is at what point is a tipping point reached? When do actually people really think, right, enough is enough? And I couldn't tell you if it's going to be this autumn or three years hence. God forbid it be the latter. But nonetheless, I think this this is what we don't know. You know, it'll probably take some kind of catalytic event that just simply sparks in just the right way at just the right time to get all this protest beginning to actually cohere. All right, thanks very much, Mark. I'm, I've learned a lot there about about uh, the protests and, and the mood. Um, we really are running out of time, but I see if we can squeeze in one more question um, from Elon Eisenberg. Um, are you... Uh, go ahead if you're ready to ask your question, please. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, sorry. Uh, hi, Mark. Thank you for a very engaging conversation. Steve as well. Uh, I just want to ask, and I hope this question isn't too vague, Mark, where do you see China's leverage over Russia and specifically its economy, of course? Where do you see that going as the war progresses? Thanks. Yeah, okay. Um, very briefly, um, again, another huge question. I mean, the real leverage is twofold. One of them clearly is in terms of buying from Russia, and primarily that means, but not exclusively, it means energy. So China's capacity to basically force Russia into very, very 
uncomfortable, un unequal terms of trade is, has been striking for some time now and actually has only, only becomes greater. So in some ways, you know, whether we're talking about uh, construction of new pipelines like power of Siberia or, or just simply sort of the deals that are struck over particularly gas supply, that, that gives China a lot of leverage because Russia needs the deals. The second area is actually banking. Now, China, the Chinese banks are, again, as I say, very cautious. They really don't want to find themselves being caught by secondary sanctions at present. But nonetheless, as, as Russia continues to de-dollarize, it's increasingly dependent on the yuan. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which actually China, in effect, provides what, for want of a better expression, could be considered money laundering for Russian banks, Russian oligarchs, Russian minigarchs, but also the Russian state. So I think you know that actually is, is a crucial uh, access point um, for you know connecting Russia still with the global banking system, despite all the existing sanctions. But what that means is absolutely that that they become dependent upon China for these two-way pipelines of money, and of course China ultimately has its hand on the. Uh, the ways of, of blocking those pipelines or just simply constricting them slightly when they want to give Moscow a, a little warning. All Great, right. Thank you. Uh, Mark, thank you. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for the question, Elon. Um, and we are coming up on an hour and I'm going to um, wrap it up here. Uh, Mark, you've been very agile and answering a range of questions. Uh, thanks very much for joining me as usual. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for, again, thanks for all the questions. Once again, uh, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And Mark uh, also has his own podcast, which is called In Moscow's Shadows. I believe the latest edition came out on Saturday. Uh, take a look. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, no week ahead in Russia next Monday, but we'll be back a bit later in May. Meanwhile, please keep an eye out for the next edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia. It comes out almost every Friday. Thanks for listening, and thanks for the questions. Bye.